It just seems to me like there is probably some NBA things that need to be said here, given the, sure. text, the text exchanges the last day or so. so. Mm-hmm. We did quite a bit of texting on it, so let's air some of that out. Sorry about your pacers, buddy. Yeah, I don't need to talk about it. It's fine. <laughs> hey, sorry TJ Warren got shut the fuck down. <laughs> TJ Warren? What, what a second half that guy had, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This this bubble gameplay has been so surprisingly good. Like, I agree. It's been great to watch. I agree. And the, the number of really good, I mean... Well played games and then good finishes. You know, like the mm-hmm. close, the close games versus blowout quotient is way better than the normal season. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it seems to me, and it may just be because of the compression time. Because these guys, I mean, I, I think that they live twenty four seven basketball during this time of the season anyway. But like, this is especially just. Uh, what else know, are you gonna yeah. do? They well, right. a lot of haircuts. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe the pressure of the pandemic is like focusing all of them in some implicit way as well. You know, I mean, they're going out. They're playing hard. Like they, yeah. these are these are good games. So mm-hmm. this is also where the the social justice um, uh, directive that the league has taken up, I think, is made. No, I, I feel like players feel like they're playing for more than just basketball too, which makes it yeah. Sense. They respect the commissioner. They probably respect their most of the coaches. Like, it, yeah, it's like a good relationship that they all have with each other. Unlike the NFL, <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, who could have who could imagine or, yeah, yeah, a league yeah, like yeah. that? I noticed mm-hmm. that in last night after the the Lakers game in LeBron's post game, um, you you could tell his response to the questions were about the historical moment, not about the game. Right, mm-hmm. it was like it's good for us to go out at a time like this. In other words, like he sees his role, and I don't think he's alone in this. But I mean, he sees his role in a post-game interview as not being a, a representative of the Lakers primarily, but as being a sort of spokesperson for social justice. He's know? done that from the beginning of the bubble. It's like he, mm-hmm. you know, in the first couple of interviews, he was asked questions about the games, and then he completely ignored them and was talking right. about justice for Breonna Taylor. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's definitely cool, but I feel like, at least for me, if I was exhausted after a game, I'd be like, shit, what are my talking points about I racism? I, <laughs> I forgot my good, like, points I had in my head. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, they don't, they don't, you, we don't think about that very often, the post-game yeah. interview. It's like, mm-hmm. just think of it, I mean, I obviously never played anywhere near a level like that, but the times after I had, like, a hard couple of hours of basketball, it's like, ask me a question, I'd be like... Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have anything going uh, to say. Racism is bad. Racism uh, sucks. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> you know. Water. That's impressive, man. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> this, I mean, could you yeah. imagine Jordan doing that, though? Yeah, well. Well, he'd just be like, well, they all buy sneakers, or whatever his quote was. Yeah, Republicans right. buy sneakers. Right. Racists buy Jordans, too. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> right. to alienate them. <laughs> I'm just I mean, just... The way that James has cultivated himself as a figure in and beyond sport is, I mean, it's just really impressive. Well, that's what, I mean, I think I said that before, but that was one of the takeaways for me of the Jordan Bulls uh, miniseries that, you know, was like, if there was a debate between LeBron and Jordan, I think there is no longer one. Like, LeBron is a way better figure of, you know, Mm -hmm. just, just in all facets you know, For he's sure. like a decent human. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, an actual it, role model. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. Now let's not, just pro- not a not a sociopath. Let's, 
let's pray that LeBron doesn't have any skeletons. You know, that would be the worst. He gets canceled yeah. somewhere in the next couple of years. God. <laughs> no, that would... <laughs> <laughs> that would, that would, but I mean, think of the pressure on him. I because remember Nathaniel, I talked to you about this. You remember this? But remember after the China thing, I was like, I was down on Harden and LeBron because they were sort of apologists for the NBA and that. And and I can't remember who made the comment, but I thought it was a really great comment, and it changed my mind on it. Where they were like, "You're asking this guy who's a, a, you know MVP, perennial MVP candidate of the NBA, and does so much stuff to like know everything about every global political issue. And this is just one that he doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. And give him a fucking break. And I was like, that's a really good point. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, I, I, I kind of am being a jerk by getting pissed at him for not ha- taking a stand against you know, yeah. humanitarian abuses in China. <laughs> like, come on. It gives it that vibe of a giant, like giant life size appropriation yeah. machine. Yeah. You know, um, this just eating all difference. I don't think you can discount that uh, reading of Hegel either. I mean, that that is sort of more of the traditional reading, I think, like as opposed to the, the people I've been dealing with. But, you know, the totalizing impulse is there. It runs all throughout. It's just, again, the way I've been reading it is that it's not that that totalizing impulse is like celebrated. It's more that it's just, it's schematized, right? So the, the shift, the shift to absolute spirit is not, uh, like finding joy in this totalizing monster. It's really just uh, a recognize, a recognition of that impulse and kind of like, for me, at least it functions as a warning about that impulse rather than like, yay, go appropriation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, although, in all fairness, it is a appropriation is a development. It's progressive, so it is kind of a yay. I mean, it's not mm. like, I mean, he doesn't have to be a fan of it in order to see it as a progressive advancement. Mm. Um, and and the need he feels, as many do and did, um, to to distinguish his thing from other things. I mean, that's. That's a hugely important element of it, I think, and that's very related to what to your this project, right? Like that, mm-hmm. I think a key part of this now, not not just a sort of ancillary part from which to begin, uh, a key part of this is the the need to have something that's distinct from the other thinkers before me uh, mm-hmm. is part of part of what lends it that like, well, not that stuff, you know? Right. Well, there's so many pressures that create that scholarly move especially today sure, i mean sure. in, in hegel's time it was obviously strongly felt but today i mean that's the way you brand yourself it's like it's an unavoidable move to some extent and that's the thing that i find problematic in barad is that you know her whole idea is uh difference an ontological difference where yeah. basically it's grounded in this relationality but she's so invested in making what i see as basically arbitrary cuts away from butler and away from foucault and away from deconstruction, even away from Niels Bohr, yeah, yeah, who's like her yeah. boy. And it's like, yeah. why do why do you need to do that? Yeah, it's you know, a, it's I, this, that's the same vibe I've had. I had when I read like the Harmon and the the, the object oriented stuff. Was I was just like, it just seemed so committed to a branding operation mm-hmm. that I was just kind of. Eh. Um, no, I mean, I get it. Like, you, you have to do it. It's just how you do that, how you stylize I don't, I don't, that. I don't agree with that, though. I mean, that to me, for me at least, that was the project of the last book and certainly will be for this one, is like, 
I don't think that you have to do it. I mean, now, yeah. look, in all fairness, yes, you have at some level, right. you're not yeah. making everything indistinct, but I also do think that you don't have to, for instance, one of the things that's crucial for me is I'm not going to invent new words. I'm not going to have an ambient rhetoric or I'm not going to have a, right. a new, like there's no, there's no new terminology for me, right? Like, and mm -hmm. that's been an important one for me all along is I don't want to, it's like, you know how everyone does that. It is a way of summarizing their thing, like rhetoricity or, you know, uh, what's Diane's, uh, um, I can't even, was it rhetoric? It's, re it's rhetoricity. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Okay. So, but again, like each of those, those are attempts to sort of like slightly distinguish. And for me, it's always been like, no, I'm going to use the same terminology that everybody else uses so that there's nothing distinctive, you know, mm -hmm. um, at that level that you can point to and say, well, Mucklebauer's theory of X, you know, right. It's easy so, to see why people, it's easy to see why people do it though. Like, of course, I mean, it, it, it rubs me the wrong way, but like, in, in terms of like the dynamics of the institution and the publishing industry, it's almost difficult not to at least attempt some of those moves. Because, I mean, look at Barad. I mean, as annoying as all that stuff is, that's the yeah. reason oh why we're God. talking. That's why, that's we're, why talking we're talking about, about her. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But that's where, I mean, that's where like taking the, this is where the Deleuze becoming imperceptible is really interesting to me is it's not a question of wrecking. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be. So all of those mm. sort of, um, what, because those pressures are kind of external pressures, right? They're not the pressures from the thinking. They're pressures from institutions. They're pressures from, you know, all those, not pressures, but forces um, that induce that. And there's, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that there's anything about the thinking that requires that. There are, there are things about uh, an individual who writes, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in an institution in ecology that wants to get, again, recognition um, mm -hmm. that requires a distinctiveness or, or a branding of some kind. But I think there's a lot to be said for, and, and I hopefully I'm going to try to say it, for, you know, for like, for the indistinguishability, for the mm -hmm. uh, ambiguity, uncertainty, whatever t terminology of like not knowing how my thing is different from, you know, ev yeah. everyone else's. And, and, it, and really thinking that it's not, you know, other than that it's like my name's on the book and not, someone else's name so and even that's not necessary now I, I get that but like most people even some of the better thinkers are not that self-conscious like yeah. if so i would i would i don't know i would challenge a little bit that idea of like the external pressure because it's completely internalized in barad right oh, i mean yeah. the she's an effect of biopower rather than a commentator on it you know yeah. what i mean yeah so well, you, and maybe I'm wrong to call it simply external, but I'm just right. saying it does seem to me imaginable, or at least I've tried that in my work of like pursuing, for me, the indistinguishability between my thinking and the thing that I'm reading, for instance, such that mm -hmm. when you read it, you don't really know. I mean, I learned that from Derrida to a certain extent. But look, Derrida's branded himself quite well, right? Mm -hmm. Like difference and, you know, yeah. um, so... I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's going to turn out that I'm just, at the end of the day, I'm going to be wrong about this one. But I think it's a, as, a, as a project, it's at least to me a more interesting one of like, I don't want it to be recognized. Or, or rather, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's not that I don't mm -hmm. want it to be, but it doesn't matter. You know? I mean, what I find tiresome about the constant branding is then you're like swimming in, I feel like I'm swimming in terms with little R's and TM's, you know, mm -hmm. next to them that, you know, that 
they're hard to mobilize. I, 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 one of the, the difficulties I had writing early on was trying to mobilize these terms, and because they were so specifically attached to specific teacher or to specific um, scholars, that I felt like I, I had to be faithful to the thing that they were doing. But the more generic concepts were just far more pliable. Um, mm. And I, I do find something different with, like, a, I mean, a lot of the terms that Derrida, you know, that we consider to be Derridian are not positive concepts in that, like, they're Derrida's idea or concept of this thing, but they're more like dynamics or structures or phenomenon that are undergoing that Derrida just thinks through, which, like, then becomes invitations for other people to think through as well without it being more or less faithful to Derrida's conception of the thing. And in fact, the one thing that Derrida resisted the most was turning something into deconstruction into a thing or a method or a, a process, like whatever else it is. I, that, insofar as he branded himself, he was the, it's not a thing branding, mm -hmm. right? It's not but a that's product. Also a, but that's also, I mean, yes, right? Like, I mean, so for instance, he didn't stop talking about deconstruction. He yeah. talked endlessly about deconstruction. Now, what he always said about deconstruction, not a word, not a concept, not, a you know, like he always, but it was, it was, I mean, again, that's to me, I think back of Deleuze makes a distinction. I can't remember where the, the Deleuze, the, the Beckett, um, uh, Joyce distinction, right? That on the question of identification, which is what we're talking about here, identifying something like, um, that Joyce went the route of multiplication, which is just, I'm just going to put so much shit in Finnegan's wake you know, that it's going to be incomprehensible. Uh, whereas Beckett, and this was, Deleuze is more interested in this, and I am as well, Beckett went the route of subtraction. Like, I'm just going to take everything out so that there's nothing, you know, I'm going to do an entire play that is a gesture or something, you know what I mean? Like, there's going to be mm. nothing, like nothing will happen, nothing is going to, you know, so it's th those two different approaches. Again, both of them are interested in problematizing, complicating the movements of identification, but they're really different styles, mm -hmm. right? They're really different comportments to the project of complicating distinction or identification or recognition again is you know well on the face of it you would think uh Deleuze would attach himself to Joyce right because that's more of a that's more that's, of an obvious multiplicity that's exactly right, right? but yeah. he's he's more interested in the subtractions of Beckett which I get I mean w when you actually look at Deleuze that it does make sense that he would go to Beckett there but it takes right. a little bit of work it right. does. It's not immediately, yeah. especially, you know, the proliferation that is anti-Oedipus and Thousand Plateaus, right? That there's just such mm -hmm. a profusion of different kinds of concepts. But I agree with you because I think of it like an interesting Kafka. Kafka is like one of the least interesting humans, right? I mean, in terms of his life, right? Mm -hmm. um, masochism, right? I mean, he, 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 he always he frequently will go the... I mean, one of my favorite phrases in my in my invention book was... Uh, um, it's I, into the first time I mentioned Deleuze and Guattari is I, I introduced them by saying as the great thinkers of confinement Deleuze and Guattari and that's one of my favorite phrases because it's like that's that's it they are thinkers of confinement like now you want to talk about movement they're thinkers of movement but it's intensive movement it's not it's not you know because once you enter into this sort of identification recognition types of movement then it becomes the most you can do is just invent massively, 
you know, like go Finnegan's Wake, right? Mm-hmm. That's the Finnegan's Wake is kind of end point, I think, for the sort of the the, the brain yes of the ass, right? Yes, right. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's all. That, that's all that you, you can do. Right. Um, See, that to me just makes me think that most of these people that are explicitly anti-dialectical, I understand why they make those decisions and why Deleuze and Foucault make those kind of cuts, but that's where, again, like the distinguishing between Deleuze and Hegel with that comment you just made about confinement, that makes it harder for me to think that distinction because Hegel's obviously a thinker of confinement as well, right? I mean, it's not just a, a multi. It's not just everything's moving all at once. He's thinking about you know explicit structures and the way they affect us. And I mean, again, it's way more explicitly phenomenological. But right. the 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 way that becoming is articulated seems to be so similar, uh, in a sense. I have to think about that one. I mean, I, it doesn't immediately ring true for me, but I'm I'm not going to discount it either. I mean. Um, well, it's like Foucault is also like, you know, the anti-dialectical thinker par excellence. And I, like, I basically just figured that out, that he explicitly positioned himself that way. Because in my readings of him, I'm like, I associate him with Butler, with Hegel. And he yeah. didn't. So I'm like, well, yeah. why, why didn't he? I, I don't know. It's still something I have to figure out, but a little right. more. It seems to but, me yeah. to be a matter of what produces the confinement, right? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean... In, in, my orientation to, to Deleuze and those in that tradition, it, it's that confinement tends to be a byproduct of appropriation of between differences, right? Like an aggressive appropriation as opposed mm. to an appropriation that's only made possible because of self-alienation. So the, so the confinement is the confinement or the, sti- the stifling confinement of the one that must then self-alienate and reappropriate. And that's just a different kind of confinement than, you know, the specific, you know, trajectory and angle and force and qualitative differences between two, one force that appropriates another, right? Mm-hmm. Like the confinement produced by the particular intersection of an appropriation is one kind of confinement as opposed to what I would take to be the much more claustrophobic confinement of a... Um, well, this is where I want to go back to think of... This is where I'm not being generous to Hegel again because I think of it as like this um, overabundant self-presence that has to self-alienate, but that renders the self as a point, which, I'm, again, I can do it Seven times out of ten, but not ten out of ten. When I'm reading this. Well, uh, so I mean, my the thing that I'm thinking as you're talking there, Nathaniel, is like maybe this is just too simple. But there's a way in which a baseline way in which um, I mean, this is the move that you make actually, Nate, in your uh, proposal, the the revised version of the proposal where you're a little more generous to Casey and Diane by by not making them ontological thinkers but making them ethical thinkers. Mm-hmm. That there's a sense in which, you know, maybe that's the sort of delusion orientation is like, given whatever sort of ontological circumstance, Kafka as a person doesn't move, you know, or the masochist as a figure doesn't move. Um, and that the claim is more about how to live, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how to live in a, in a circumstance uh, as opposed to... Um, I don't know, like Hegel's, this is not, you know, it's spirit. Spirit is not, mm-hmm. he, he seems kind of, in some ways, maybe uninterested in how to live, you know, right. at, at this juncture and, you know, in yeah. this book. But 
um, that question is not really on the table for this is just like well, look life is this voracious appropriation machine and I'm just going to lay out for you how it works uh, yeah. as distinct from you know a, a potentially a, 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 the Deleuze orientation was well given that here are ways to live that are less yeah. contributing to the voracious appropriation machine or at least attempt to interrupt it in some ways yeah I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, it's that's the reason why you can couple like Nietzsche and Deleuze, maybe even put Foucault in there is because they're actually interested in modes of living that are uh, that are other than resentment or whatever. Whereas for for Hegel, ethics is not really a choice or it's rather ethics is incorporated into this system of appropriation. So, again, like even if there's as nuanced as Deleuze's or Nietzsche's. ideas about that ethical intervention are for Hegel that's still right there's no real way out of the like you guys are saying the appropriation machine so when you think there's a better mode of life it still falls back into this um this movement of simplicity or negation or whatever you know but that, or this is be- where like the, the notion of better um just functions very different for mm-hmm for Deleuze and Hegel as well, because for Hegel, like the notion of better is completely governed by a tra- like the transcendent progression of absolute spirit, in which case mm-hmm. there is no choice. It's just machinating, right? But mm-hmm. the, the notion of better is also problematic for Deleuze at all as, as well, because there is no transcendent metric by which to say better or worse. And like when I was saying before about this, this different sense of confinement is like, no, 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 given this intersection of forces, which produces a, a, a confinement, right, one idiosyncratic set of confinements mm-hmm. that allow for different modes of life. And then the ethical question is not like make that life better or worse, but experiment with the kinds of life that's, that that's that right. confinement makes yeah. possible. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's to me the distinction. So it's not about choosing a better form of life or finally figuring it out. It's like, no, given the field, ex, you know, the mandate is to experiment. Or for those right. thinkers, the mandate is mm-hmm. s- see what you can do. And one possibility might be transforming the field, right? Like, right. But that's nothing you're never going to know. And you're mm-hmm. not, you know. Um, right. So, well, then the question for me then is why can't we be, like, scope, just even broader scope, like, why can't we be generous to everyone? Like, why do, yeah. I, why do I have the impulse to glom right. onto Hegel rather than yeah. Deleuze. Why do you guys, are, why, yeah. why are you at least slightly more generous with Deleuze? Like what, yeah. what engendered these decisions and why am I so invested in, you know, attaching myself to one rather than the other? I mean, is that Which just is, like kind of... It is know. the same, and to me it's the same question as the making the distinctions about the people that you're reading and not reading. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, for me the project, uh, I mean, it's an interesting idea because what happens if I try to, that's why you should, I mean, in a sense, go after Deleuze, Mm -hmm. but also go after Hegel as well. Right. Right. But, but try, think, think of an interesting way of doing it. Not just the sort of like, okay, yes, everyone says he's a, this is a voracious uh, machine like thing, but, but maybe, and that's in many ways, I feel like what I'm struggling with is how do we understand the projects of these other folks like Deleuze, like Foucault, Mm -hmm. I mean, as you pose the question there of, I always saw him as part of this, you know, this lineage, but he didn't see himself as part of that lineage. And why not? 
um, mm-hmm. what was up for him. And even if it turns out that you, what you discover is, well, because he had a kind of poor reading of, of Hegel that was based on these traditional notions of totalitarian statehood, um, mm-hmm. come up with a better one. Right, like yeah. come up with better, yeah. and, and to me this sounds kind of like a better one, which is given the ontological condition of negation, experiment with mm-hmm. uh, other possibilities. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But this is. Yeah. I mean, my question is: this is. Um, I see where, I mean, for, forget about it as a mandate. I just see how experimentation is possible within the ontological field that Deleuze sets up, right? Yeah, because, right. Here I mean, so like, I don't even know what it would mean to experiment with it. Like, there's no, like, one of my fundamental questions has been, can there be right or wrong turns in here? Or, like, just to make it more radical, can there be turns Right. right. This well, just seems the like end, a straight the dead road. end question that you asked before. Yeah. 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 Are there are there um, dead ends? Like, do people do it wrong? You know. Whereas I would even you know intensify your earlier claim about you know the changing the field as a possible mode of experimentation with a with a kind of confinement and not knowing whether you're doing it or not. I would go radically the other direction and say you're changing the field no matter what you do and how you yeah. you're experimenting with it regardless irregardless. It's now officially a word. Um, regardless <laughs> of, of because you what said you it? do, <laughs> no, because the OED adopted it. <laughs> uh, they decided enough dumb fuckers have started using it, thinking it was a word that we've got to. We'll just put it in there. Yeah. We just got to put it in there. Yeah. I mean, it's a big uh, fucking book. What difference does another word make? Yeah, I know. Shit. Yeah. Um, but um, it, like the the reef the, the the field can't help but be remade, and it's like. It would be very difficult to imagine what uh, a straight line would look like in that. Yeah. Like that, I think maybe that's the biggest difference. Is I think it's difficult to imagine a straight line in within a Deleuzean ontology, and it's very difficult yeah. to imagine a turn within uh, Hegel's uh, field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what Hegel offers me specifically for my project is like just an anti-utopianism. So what I sense in Barad and in, even in Butler and, and people that kind of react against some of the, what I, I guess, fatalism sort of of Hegel is what I want to lean into because it just, it just seems, I don't know, either truer or more pragmatic or something because what the, the moves that Butler tries to make away from Hegel uh, ends up simply, again, like not... I feel like I keep emphasizing the, the appropriation machine in a bad way. But like for me, it, it functions as a warning. Like every time you think you're transforming the field or, or whatever, every time you have, a, you have a, an inclination or a sense that something is being transformed or that you're operating on, on the side of progressive change, which I'm not saying like yeah, Deleuze does yeah, or anyone, right, but yeah. people like Barad are invested in, in those kind of moves. It's like... For Hegel, that's it's it's both untenable and like kind of a necessary reaction to the dynamics of negation, yeah. you know. So yeah. like that that reach for progress is both yeah. necessary and impossible. It's that constant uh, movement, and I can see how that's like not attractive for people. I mean, like it's not. I, mean, I don't think it's attractive for most people, even in everyday life, to think that everything is sort of incorporated under a system of negation. It's like, that's not something that, like, it's not like a motto that everyone runs around with. But, 
Um, I don't I mean, know. There is, is there a progressivism like, here, though. Is there not? I mean, like, everything is moving toward the absolute consciousness of, of manifestation and consciousness of, of God. So, like, I do get, like... Artificial you know, intelligence, the, baby. That's Hegel's... <laughs> When Hegel plays right, right. it out, there it is. Predicted it, yeah. I mean, the bubble that is getting popped is that, you know, people think that they can produce progress that is different from, you know, the sort of downward slope. Like, they can mm-hmm. be the one that saves the thing, or they can be the one that diverts it onto the right track. And they've made, you know, following their their plan is better than the other one, and, like... You know, yeah. <laughs> Hegel's just like, like Drake. God's plan. God's plan. Right? It's God's plan. Yeah, yeah. You can't get away from it. I, I know, but be... go ahead. Mark. Go ahead. Oh, it's just that. Like, I, I, I see that reading, and I again, like, I think that that's fair and viable. It's just for me, absolute spirit doesn't signal progress in that in a traditional sense of like getting better. Absolute spirit maybe is better for the philosopher. It's not. It's not better for life or for people. It's just simply a it's a it's a progression in thinking, but there's no again, there's no comfort, there's no um yeah. you can't rest in that space. That's when you actually that's when you have to invent an experiment. That's to me when experimentation happens in Hegel, once you reach that reflexive point where you're like, "Oh, this is actually all a movement of self. There's no outside reality separate from me." So now I can start playing around, right? Like, so that's when the, the play starts happening um, in okay, Hegel. Because what I was going to ask you a moment ago, which I think is a very, uh, I mean, it's a question for your project and for where mm-hmm. you are right now is, because here's the thing. I'm totally sympathetic to your motivations. They're ones that I mm-hmm. share, which is the, you know, the desire to smack down. I mean, you've heard me rant about, like, the desire to smack down the kind of in, in more or less implicit, sometimes it's just explicit, but mo- the moralism mm. of, you know, uh, most yeah. scholarship that we read of like, and, and to, the, the desire to smack that down. For, uh, for me, for instance, folks like Barad and particularly the new materialists coming in the wake of Barad, they're just low hanging fruit. They're just like, they're just not very smart. And so I just, uh, and, and so to me, I just don't even really, I mean, I think that you're right. I just don't care because I, I think for me, one of the things that shifted at, at a certain point or not, it's not, a, it's not an age development for me. It's actually, uh, I have to get past that desire or impulse to smack down the implicit moralism um, because at the end of the day, the question that matters the most to me is what am I going to make, mm-hmm. Right. And uh, like, what, what can I make? Like what kind of machine or what kind of thing can I generate? And mm-hmm. at a certain level, s- smacking down the, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of poor imitators is not really making, is not really making anything. It's just. Right. You know, well, I, I agree. I mean, that's why like for certain figure, I mean, not to get into my prospectus, whatever, or my project totally, but like, that's, that's why all we're cer- talking about. Why don't well, you? I know, <laughs> I know. I just, I just don't want to like, I don't want to be the totalizing person. I don't want to embody Hegel in these conversations. Yeah, but Nate, um, you didn't do this. Nathaniel and I did this to you. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. We okay. took your fucking right. prospectus and we're like, we're going to organize a goddamn uh, uh, video thing around this whole, around your prospectus. So it's your fault. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, but so like the certain figures, I completely agree with your, that diagnosis, like, uh, like, 
that's for sure low hanging fruit. And I wasn't even really interested when I was writing those paragraphs. Now, when I got to the more generous, <laughs> we can cut that. Um, when I got to the more, <laughs> um, <laughs> get all of your disses out right now. So we can, we, we know where to look when we're cutting everything. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> no, no, see, see, when we get, when I get to the more generous readings, I, I actually think I got, I can get good productive readings out of because I'm reading them like primary sources. I'm right. reading, I'm reading like a secondary source of Barad, which that's right. when it's like, okay, this is not really, no one's gaining anything out of this, right. but the better, some of the better rhetorical theorists in our field, you can read them like you would yeah. read Barad or Hegel or whoever. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think there's still, you can have productive commentary with them. Yeah, um, I want you to come after me. Come after the invention book. I would be interested. <laughs> I'm, I'm being totally yeah, yeah. serious. Like, if there's something there, I'm not saying you got. Right. I mean, but I'm just saying, like, so as the sort of Deleuze rep in the field, you know, like, yeah. I'd be interested in that because, because it's it's it really is interesting to me, and and I right. do. Like I said, I share the impulse, and I I just for me, I never wanted to. So, for instance, earlier versions of the invention book, like the dissertation version, were much more polemical. And mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that there's residues of stuff on Beesicker in there and a couple of other things where I just kind of took them out or toned them down because I realized for me, I was like, actually, it's that move that I want to try to forestall. And it's the move of saying, I'm not them, right? Mm. I'm not, or the, the thinking I'm doing is not aligned with that. And what, I, what became interesting to me was, and it was early on in the disc writing process and it was the... Oh God! The audience addressed audience the Eden and folks. Yeah. So right. So those two, and, and that's. I mean, I just find that to be an insipid and a perfect example of this kind of liberal ethos that masquerades itself as a kind of intellectual project. And it. I mean, I honestly, I just remember reading that for the first time, and being like, "This is so frustrating and angering to me." Uh, not, not just the piece itself, but also how it was taken up as like, oh, this is a wonderful example of inclusion and all this kind of stuff. And I really wanted to s smack it down. And the, the first chapter that I wrote, which the chapter, I can't remember the, which, which one it was, but um, I ended up, so I started off with a kind of polemical takedown of that. And as I wrote through it and continued on, it ended up revisiting some of that and where, where Eden Lunsford ended up having kind of like anticipated my objections and done and, and, and sort of uh, done something to prevent me, prevent those kinds mm -hmm. of objections. And I was like, wow, this is a way weirder space to be in where I no mm -hmm. longer dislike that progressive yeah. liberalism because it actually has hinges that I, I believe they probably didn't ever think of, right. um, but they're there. I mean, I didn't mm -hmm. just invent them, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so this, it was this interesting moment of, oh my God, I don't know who Eden Lunsford are anymore. And therefore I don't know who I am in relation to them anymore. And now this is precisely the productive space. And, mm -hmm. So it required the polemical, but it also required the undermining of the polemical using them, right, right. To, to get into that space of where what, it, that, what I just said mirrors what you were saying about absolute spirit is the place where the shit can happen, right, where mm -hmm. the sort of pure contingency of multiplicity and I, I, that, whatever, that was my sort of experience working through it. And I mean, who knows how you're going to go, how you're going to go through it, but it's just an interesting move when you get to that thinking of indistinction and it's still, it's, 
at least for me, it's always, it's not like I got there and I lived there and I'm now there mm-hmm. and it's a fucking, I, you know, put up a, 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 you know, homeowner sign or something. It's like, it's always work in a sense to, to get into that space where I, I don't think I'm distinguishing myself from something, but I always see it as a draw. It's like, how can I use this thing? And even our interactions like this, how can I use this thing in order to induce in me that dissolution of desire for recognition in a sense, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm just thinking about the different ways of of producing that movement. And it sounds like it, at least for you, starts with the polemical, um, which it sounds what what you've done is like you do the polemical work and then you like do it against the strongest version of the target that you can create. And then once you've rendered the indistinction through the work of the polemical, you subtract the polemicism and attribute the the positive value back yeah, to that's this right. indistinct you know. Well, because it really it really it. does it really does get to the point where it's like, oh fuck, all those things that I said that got me here don't really make sense anymore, given the Given the generous reading that I've done and, and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, been forced to do, that given the generous reading, the ungenerous stuff that got me there doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. Uh, what about, like, a, another way of doing it without subtracting the, the polemics? Allow, like, start with the polemical and then let it intensify to the point right. where it becomes indistinguishable from mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. the polemicized. And then you're in this fun, like, you can be in this very fun place of almost like ironic mania where <laughs> you can't tell the one from the other and yeah. like just as a as a pedagogical move for the reader like to be able to follow the you know this absolute distinction into this almost manic indistinction is like that's that. what I was going to say yeah like the the polemic and the indistinction i think at least under the hegelian or maybe the Zizekian comportment, those don't have to be separate moments, right? right because, right. I mean, someone like Zizek especially, he's so polemical, he's just striking people down, right? Uh, thinkers after thinkers, just, this is what they missed, this is why they absolutely missed the point. But that, it comes back to his own project in some way. So that's like, he's almost, he's chastising everybody, including himself in that picture. So it's almost like the polemic is just variegated to this point of like, at a certain point, you don't really know the target. It's like, we're all the target. Everybody's the target. Myself is the target, you know. Is himself the target would have to be, that movement would have to, it couldn't be dismissive, right? It would have to be a a polemic that could, that could never arrive at the moment of dismissal because the, the more it tried to render the distinction that can be dismissed, the more that distinction becomes indistinct. Mm-hmm. Right, that would. I yeah. mean, to me, that's what would. That so the it is, movement for, couldn't. The movement well, couldn't me, be like the, dismiss this, dismiss this, dismiss this. Right, mm-hmm. it can't. Yes, it, it, well, I mean, it can be, but that's going to short circuit the 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 sort of generous uh, indistinguishability moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to make that. But I, I think of like in, in it's the chapter that I'm thinking about. So it was the audience chapter in the invention book, and uh, I start off with. Like, you know, the popular phrase of one must, the writer should consider their audience when they write. And I go through a little bit of, like, that is a meaningless, worthless 
statement. Like it doesn't say anything, and yet everybody thinks it's this really important message, but what could it actually mean? But by the end, I just fully endorse that slogan as being, well, you know, that's, that's the lesson that I've learned is that the audience, <laughs> the audience, or the writer must consider their audience when they write. And that, that, that sentence now has so many possible senses to it and is so diffuse and amorphous as to not offer any solace or comfort or even direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that to me was, that was the interesting thing of the, the change in the sense of this slogan that you know people say all of the time from one of think about other people when you're composing to like you know whatever the fuck you know this kind of massive indistinguishability as the space for invention or mm-hmm. whatever um but but the the important movement in that is that you know the slogan at the beginning becomes like a maxim like run this machine yeah, right that's and right. then by that's the time right. it becomes a slogan again it's like right it becomes a provocation for having to like think and you don't know because it's inhabited it's taken on so many things you don't know where it's going to take you let's read let's read that one for let's read that chapter for the next time because i mean i haven't read it in 15 years but i i just remember the writing of that and it really because that's the eden lunsford stuff as well and so we'll mm-hmm. see if it still is uh, still remain if I got all the polemics out. But that's what that chapter was. Was it ended up being this like slogan that at the beginning is an untenable slogan that by mm-hmm. the end is like the only thing that you can possibly say about writing. You know. Right. Yeah. I and mean, I'd be interested the... to hear your guys' responses to the movement of that uh, yeah. chapter. So. Yeah, and I mean the 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 movement from endorsement to complication to kind of provisional endorsement to complication. I mean, that's what right. interests me, and that's that's sort of what at least Zizek's version of Hegel provides, is that there's no simple endorsement of a mode of thinking or a paradigm or whatever. And that's yeah. what I react against in the Barads and people like that, is I that there's, there's one singular endorsement of this mode without a constant kind of turning over of that, of that mode of thinking. So it's like, th- that's the main thing for me, is like... It, if you're going to endorse anything, it's the process of interrogating your own endorsements. Right. It's the do- it's the yeah. problem is the dogmatism. Even, yeah, yeah. Even even if the dogmatism is not like strident and like you know shouting at the front of a crowd, like it's mm-hmm. it's still implicit in the thinking that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, that's where for me very influential for me coming to Deleuze because the first thing that I ever read was the Foucault because I'd spent a my first semester of graduate school. I just read everything. F- by Foucault that was translated at the time. And then Foucault, it was my second semester of master's program where I read the Foucault intro to Antioedipus, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that, the whole uh, message of that preface is this is the book that's an introduction to the, to the anti-fascist life and recognizing the ways in which all the little molecular fascisms that comprise the directions of our thinking. So that informed so much of how I went into Deleuze because I was like, mm-hmm. well, that's exactly the project that interests me. Is I mean, we don't have to call it fascist; we can call it dogmatic, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. Or earlier, I was calling this, you know, moral, the moral high ground, or whatever. But it is, it is that right? Like that sense of here's the thing to do. But I, it's interesting to me because what appeals to you is not a kind of um, wavering quality it's actually a dogmatic commitment to Mm non-dogmatism 
yeah. right? Like, um, and yeah. but that, that's not necessarily a contradiction. I mean, it's only a contradiction mm-hmm. logically. Like, I, right, I, right, right. I see that as like this sort of insistent point. But that's where I'm going to come back for you in terms of your project is like, what are you going to make, right? Like, um, mm. so I, I get how that's fun to smack. Th- not fun. I don't want to. I don't want to diminish it at all right, um, right. I get the draw and the appeal of the smackdown and I would mm-hmm. say like for me speaking and like in class that's 90% of what I do is the mm-hmm. smackdown of the thing that thinks it's found the answer uh, right. but for me at least writing has always been or at least academic writing has always been I don't want to write that shit up it's just I, it feels gross to me to write that up I'm always interested in writing up something that's the next step right mm-hmm. like the well, what do we make now Part of the the fun of the experiment is, you know, be, because you don't propose the the dogma in place of the dogma that you're smacking down, or that if there is one there, it's just the dogmatic adherence to smacking down the dogma. Is like, I mean, that could be an interesting line of flight just to see what happens when the criticism isn't for the sake of some some other know, on the horizon That's right. you know dogmas like what happens when that becomes what 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 can relentless criticism right. negation do and That's Adorno. That's negative dialectic. Right. I mean it may but by the way I'm not saying it's not Hegel and it's not GJ. Yeah. I'm just saying like yeah. That's to me, that was the thing that I got from Adorno's negative dialectic is just like, oh my god, this is just relentless criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. and then criticism of the criticism, and then criticism of the criticism of the you know, like there's no sublation, there's no off In his terms, the sublation or off was the positive moment of growth, right, mm-hmm. or, or, or progress. And that's what he's effectively trying to take that moment out of Hegel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that there's, and it's just, man, I mean, it's, it's cool, it's really cool. I mean, yeah. from my perspective, that's going to make something. There's no way that that can't yeah. make something, but I, I don't know what it is, right? And that's well, I mean, the fun you, of the experience. Which is okay. You could, you could call it a method well, that makes of reading. It fun. You could call right. it a method of interpretation, but yeah, I mean, that's the basic, right? The, the relentless suspicion of the movement of discourse, of conceptuality, right? The, yeah. the constant, like, turning over of your own propositions seeing what they do in different contexts, seeing if they still function like the way you wanted to at first, right? So that, that ruthless or relentless self-consciousness, I mean, to me, that's, I don't see that anywhere. So right. at least yeah. in terms of a, a, a comportment, right? If right. I'm offering right. a comportment, that is right. something. Um, no, well, no, here's no, another way yeah. of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Putting yeah. it in some of the language that you had earlier is like you. What you really liked about what you really like about Hegel is that he doesn't offer you the solace of rest, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. there isn't any place where you can be like, all right, we're better now because everything is under the process of the self alienation, and that's precisely the bubble that you like to pop. Is that like people just want to find somewhere to have like to to rest, and if anything, if if there is a moralism for you, it seems to be like rest is. One, the figure of rest is is just not on the table, right? It's mm-hmm. impossible, and it's not desirable either. That would be death, right? Like, right. exactly. So, so the only the only response to completely short circuit the desire to rest to find you know the the, the good plateau is relentless criticism. You know what? You know what? One of your uh, targets then should be 
because I like this. I mean, this sounds cool. Like, one of your targets should be, think of, like, the Latour and the mm. Kate Hales, like, a decade ago. And mm. there seems to be this kind of uh, giving up of the so-called hermeneutics of suspicion because it didn't really pan out right. to get us. Right. And you're like, yeah, it wasn't fucking suspicious enough, right? Like, <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, you know, your, your claim is exactly the opposite of theirs. Of that it it didn't go far enough, and so mm-hmm. instead of giving that up and 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 siding with the making of stuff, instead it's like no, let's double down on the suspicion, and we need to even be suspicious of our suspicions, and you know et cetera. Exactly, and again, it's not like it's not like at the end of that, like we get to the right. best orientation. Right. It's like I don't, I mean you can't guarantee anything within that that uh, dynamic of suspicion. There's nothing guaranteed or there's no comfort. So again, it's like, right, like Nathaniel, you're saying there's, there's no, I'm not, no I'm, both, I'm both critiquing these resting points that people glom onto, but you also have to articulate those as basically necessary moments um, of discourse or at least like understandable, like, right, you can diagnose them within this movement because everybody needs to territorialize uh, right. in, in Deleuze's terms. It's just that right. once you... Once you reify that one of those moments, that's where I find there to be trouble. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's, it's not just the, um, the, the, the uh, delusion that one has found rest, that is more profoundly you're criticizing the, the drive or the desire to find the rest. Right. Right. Like, right. We want what's bad for us. We want what's <laughs> yeah. going to kill us. There's the death mm-hmm. drive. Right. We want to arrest the process of becoming. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's just such a strange, inc- like, when you really think about it, because it's like you both need those resting points, and you also can't have a final one, because like you're saying, it would be death. So the death drive is precisely the suspension of, of any final resting point, for, for Freud at least, right? So it's yeah, like that, right. again, you probably can't think of it in points, but it does kind of lend itself to that, where like you have a, you have a, re- you have a territorialization, and then you destroy it, and then you bring, you bring yourself to a new one. It's clearly not linear like that, but... But this but is the yeah. thing, like the, the language of deterritorialization. Like nothing is ever territorialized, right? It's right. only the nothing process is ever of a territory. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And and I think that's, you know, I, um, you know, I think that you can definitely say in this Hegelian sense that there is always, you know, a the the, the production of or there is the process of resting, right? Or mm-hmm. like or arresting, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it never stabilizes into a point. And man, do people want it. And that's, that should be the thing that we have to relentlessly combat and be on guard against. Right. Because e- even logically, that stability lends itself to death. Like, it, yeah, just yeah. within the system, Nothing you happens. can't access that stability. Yeah. It, that yeah. stasis is untenable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have and to yet, do a lot for of, some fucking weird reason, of, people want it. You mm-hmm. have to do a lot of work to maintain things as they are. It's never just... Right. Which just, is, I always use the language of, of, you know, the closest you can get to that stability is cancer, right? Which is the constant, laborious reproduction of the same, which is never quite the same, and it takes over everything, right? Mm-hmm. That even, I, that, that to me is the closest, like the thing that people, people want their own cancer. They, they, they want to reproduce the condition, like some kind of ideal condition that in its very repetition is never ever the same, it, mm-hmm. but it's 
But isn't there a difference between places of rest and places of moral superiority, right? Like, I mean, to me, the idea of rest, I mean, if we're thinking of it in those terms of, like, movement and rest, um, or relative movements or whatever, like, I don't have a problem with rest. I don't have a problem with, like, okay, you can't sprint 24-7, right? Like, you know, I mean... You can't. I mean, you've got to. You got to rest right. in order to be able to sprint. Um, but there, there's a difference between that and a lot of what drives um, the projects that you're talking about isn't so much rest as like certainty, right? Like yeah, exactly. The, the 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 belief that I have the answer or that I mm-hmm. know the solution or so, correctness in some ways, right. truth. You would which say, is which yeah. I mean is kind of a resting right it's a resting kind of in, rest resting in certainty resting in the the sure. grounds of your system that you set up that see that's that's one of the main issues i have with barad is that even though it's this like very strange diffracted ontology there's still a grounds to that ontology and it's yeah. it's materiality it's relationality and so she rests in that right she's she's completely at at yep. peace with her uh with her ontological framework Right. But the the idea here is you want to come up with a a notion of rest then that isn't stable, right? Like mm-hmm. that that so if you know what absolute spirit or pure contingency or pure negation or whatever would be mm-hmm. a sense of stasis that's not immobile, right? It's not mm-hmm. it doesn't simply repeat the same and it never could. It can't even imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if rest then is refigured as a particular style of movement, um, mm-hmm. then it would be less, less troubling, right? And like, less, and less, um, um, it'd be di- more difficult to, um, uh, for a place like rest like that to grant anybody certainty. Because I do agree with Nate that there is a connection between places of rest and places of certainty because certainty would require a certain amount of stability. Otherwise, that certainty is pretty false, right? Mm-hmm. You need to yeah. Yeah. have that, that's that stable ground from which to assert one's certainty. So, yeah, I, I would say, I, I mean, again, I've, I've always, for whatever reason, I don't have the best ability to articulate, but I always think of this in terms of, of a cancer, that there is still movement there. It is still this... Um, it is still a kind of change, but um, and it, and you know it looks like a play, It looks like it's just the repetition of the same, and there's some kind of mm-hmm. stability and staticness there, but only because there is this relentless reproduction machine going yeah. on. And th- this is why Derrida is so attractive me, attractive to me too, because there are virtually no resting places in in his writing. Yeah. I mean, like, there's the critique of his, like, relativism, right? The kind of, like, yeah. lazy, sloppy, like, anything goes in right. Derrida. It's not that. It's just suspicion. Oh, no. It's self-consciousness yeah. is what that is. Like, what, why is that a bad thing? <laughs> it has nothing to do with moral or conceptual relativism. It's about rigorous scrutiny of your own movement of thinking, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and this is where, I mean, so for instance, I, I just, I'm squeamish around terms like rest and movement just because they're so, like, it just, it reminds me so much of years ago, I mean, <clears throat> when, and, and I think a lot of people still think this, that the the target of uh, sort of postmodern thinking was Descartes and the Cogito, right? Like mm-hmm. the I, I think and 
And I just remember learning years ago, like that's not the Kojito as a place of rest. I, the I think that's not troubling, right? Like that's, you know, it it lives in its own little quasi solipsistic universe. I mean, the the danger is the appropriation machine, which is, uh, um, you know, there's there's a way in which, and I just always associated this with Hegel, right? Hegel was to me, Hegel was the real danger from mm-hmm. Enlightenment thinking, not Descartes. Insofar as what Hegel offered, and by the way, I'm getting this from Adorno's the negative, the the uh, um, dialectic of enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. The the Odysseus stuff, where he's like the the figure for enlightenment should should be Odysseus. He's the guy who travels around to all the foreign lands and kills, you know, like appropriates the other mm-hmm. into a version of the same, like uh, you know, putting a McDonald's in Red Square and on the moon, and you know, in other right. words. Cr- producing everything of a version of, of self, mm-hmm. right, in that way, as at that form of appropriation. So that, that so that it was never an issue of stability versus movement. It was always an issue of a movement that pr- simply appropriates or projects itself versus a movement that expropriates. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that mm-hmm. those, those differences to me were the key differences. Yeah. You know, so, so but, but in terms of how we're thinking of appropriation here, it's not the McDonald's at Red Square, it's, you know, it, it is not yeah. simply, I put a version of myself, the self-alienating move of otherness is not just, I make everything into a version of me, it is mm-hmm. everything, you know, it's, it's the self-other, mutually, self, mutually transformative function. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so, every, every appropriation is an expropriation, at least in the way we've been be. reading reading this right. this version of Hegel yeah so right. it's the it's the lack of comfort there that's appealing right, right. like it, you're not simply appropriating your environment or the other uh, they're just as much affecting you and there's no there's no uh, simple difference between the two there's no subject object divide whereas for Descartes you know there obviously was kind of a clean a clean cut for him in Hegel it's it becomes in, indistinguishable to the point of you could say paralysis in certain cases, but if you reach absolute spirit, it becomes freeing or liberating in some way, you know. But you, I still think you you can make distinctions between different styles of appropriation there, where like mm-hmm. some kinds of appropriation are more inclined to generate difference, and other right. kinds are are less inclined. You know, like mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when, when I eat. I'm pretty much appropriating it to make myself. Yes, of course, there is a change in my. You are body. what you eat, John. You are what you, know, you eat. Right, mm-hmm. uh, but that's one. I mean, that's why eating is to me eating is an interesting, you know, circumstance to think about appropriation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and because it is, it's like I'm taking in the other <laughs> in, exactly. in an incredibly literal way. And what does that do? Well. It does different kinds of things, right? I mean, it's not simply, even if we just confine ourselves to that domain of eating, some things make you sick, some things, one mm-hmm. pill makes you <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, that there are different types of appropriation or different ways that different foods and, and different, so you have different kinds of appropriation, some of which are more transformative than others. And some of which are more this is why, simply self-replicated. This is what is really interesting to me about disgust in the sort of gustatory register is, you know, like, our tastes change and, you know, what mm-hmm. we find disgusting and what, like, we would literally want to throw up or, like, gag at the thought of 
changes based on our sort of encounters with, with difference. Yeah. And the thing that would, in one context, at one point in my life, make me want to throw up becomes just a delight Your favorite in another. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, this is a case where, I mean, I, I don't even think eating is a simple appropriation of, of the other, that it reorients you to, you know, a whole lot of things. And I, like, you know, in my own, like, development is the wrong word, but the sort of, like, my, my own... Um, cultivation of of be getting used to different kinds of foods it's like you get you you get a, the hang of a handful of things and now suddenly a whole array of things um come into like become possible to experience right. and engage and the sort of the universal you know throw up reaction becomes isn't replaced by some universal enjoyment action but becomes replaced with this whole heterogeneous field of different kinds of experiences and orientations to things and that you know that like to me that there there's i feel like i'm well okay that food is all shit now so i I was gonna say that i'm far more expropriated than i than it is appropriated but (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah well it's it's transformative you can certainly say that i mean yeah right but again that kind of points to the complexity of the for itself in Hegel, like where so where something was where something was previously um, disgusting or made you feel alienated or like kind of was scary to you, you can then at a certain point, uh, you know, revert or, or transform that thing into a, a positive experience. So like it's it's the same as Foucault's like you end up fetishizing the oppressor basically, or like yeah, the thing yeah. the thing that really scares you, you end up wanting. Um, and it becomes part of that movement of spirit in, in Hegel's terms. Like, I think of it with, um, with like, really dissonant music. Like, if you showed that to a baby, it's going to cry. Um, but you show it to a grad student, and he's going to be like, ooh, this is really cool, and it's making, you know, my skin tingle, and it's, you know what I mean? So, like, there's levels of that appropriative function. Yeah. And it, again, you don't have to think of it, like, as totalizing in this, like, weird, uh, fascistic way. But again, it's like the the liberatory potential uh, is is obscured there. Whereas for for a lot of thinkers, like that's what they lean into. It's like the the proliferation of desire. Whereas right. for someone like Hegel, it's like we should still be suspicious of that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean. Well, I, okay, I don't know how much this is a response, but like I. I was really moved by Hume's sensibility of taste, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Like, mm-hmm. just, like, I, you know, I first came across it when I was taking an undergrad philosophy of art course. And, you know, just, like, the monotonous repetition of text, I thought that they had sort of, like, discovered the right metric for determining good art from bad art was just, like, for me, exhausting. And then coming across Hume was like, no, there are, like... Th- Bodies cultivate different orientations to um, to to food or or art or whatever else it is, and they're not predetermined that you know mm-hmm. these sorts sorts of things are played out in repetitions of um, of exposure, and mm-hmm. um, and that's why I was really excited to teach that to my students a year or two ago, and my students reacted like really violently against it because like it was really scary for them to to think that they're at a bodily level and at a psychological level that that um 
the stuff that they found repulsive or disgusting could they could acquire a taste for it and that was in some ways a major threat to them and mm-hmm. I think that you're totally right that then that the other becomes fetishized insofar as it becomes like a life, like the other becomes a life sustaining thing for me because I'm able to demarcate myself against it and it's got to stay away. But that for me is ultimately a fear of self transformation. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. The, 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 you know, um, the fear of appropriation is very much so akin to a fear of, of, of yeah, self transformation. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna become it, or it's gonna become yeah. me. Like, oh, well, no. I I remember. I mean, this is anecdotal, so irrelevant. But I mean, I I remember, like six years ago, uh, I just kind of stopped liking the taste of beer, and <laughs> and I I remember when it happened. I mean, it was over the course of like a semester, and I was just like, you know, I I kind of fought through it a few times at the speakeasy and whatever because. And then there was a point where I was just like, I just don't like drinking beer anymore. And like, that's such a central part of who I, how I think of who I am or, or was at the time. That was really kind of traumatic. Right? Like, who am I going to be if I don't like the taste of beer? I mean, fortunately, I had scotch as a sort of side replacement. But like, I don't even want to have a beer anymore. And it's still true mm. to today. Like, I just don't like. And it's not. I didn't have like a bad experience or anything like that. And everything was going along just fine. And then uh, mm-hmm. just a few times, I was like, eh, maybe I had a bad bottle. Maybe I had whatever. And then it was like, I just don't like this stuff. And it was it was very hard to be like okay I'm not I'm just not a beer drinker anymore it's that identification yeah. move again. Yeah, this also can, yeah. this sounds like it's also sort of been a part of this whole experiment of like what does the subtraction of alcohol do in my life because I mean like well, the, yeah. the, you know the, the easy like the um, quick way of reading that is to say either you have you know your gustatory sensibilities have contracted and you've lost the capacity to appreciate something that's you know in and of itself good or you've advanced beyond the vulgar taste of beer and you've gone into something more reified and cultivated yeah you've yeah exactly whatever it is but you know if you just accept like the you know the, the 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 complex that is you know you are tongue and mouth in beer like that's not the the whole story of liking beer that is oh, sure, connected to sure. a whole lot of other of things sure. other things and it just opens up it closes down some ways of living and it opens up other ones right. and that just becomes a far more interesting way of of, of imagining that relationship to another this well, thing yeah. I mean that's yeah that's right. like I told you I told you guys when my TV blew up a few weeks ago you know and. And mm-hmm. I just decided not to replace it. And I always have the TV on. I very rarely watch it, but it's on a lot, especially with basketball. And I was absolutely certain. I'm like, well, I'm going to try this experiment because life presented me with this. And I'm going to be a no TV person for a little while. But I guarantee you I'll have the TV back before the NBA you know, kicks off. Two weeks into the NBA, I still don't have a TV, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I've just, I'm, I'm just riding this. And it was one of those situations, of, okay, life presented me with this thing. It was difficult at first. I mean, I told you guys, like, I found myself reaching for the remote constantly. But now mm-hmm. it's like, okay, my evenings are completely different because I'm not located with, the, you know, the TV on in the background. And when I, like, when I was texting you guys last night, like, I have to go find the game. I can't just, mm-hmm. the game doesn't just come on for me. I have to make right. a very specific effort. So the game that you guys were watching, I couldn't get. So I went to the other game. You know, um, yeah. so it's yeah. It I does. mean, 
produces I mean, different ha- it's a transformation. Yeah. I mean, habits are so complex and difficult to break. Like, you can't, you have to re-articulate them. You, you can't simply, like, abandon a habit, right? And so when you disidentify with a habit that's so crucial to your sense of self, right. I mean, that's disorienting. Like, I always come back, I always come back to music because it's something I consume yeah. compulsively and just way too much. And yeah. it's like, when I no longer, ident- like, there's music where, from a few years ago, used to bring me so much pleasure in certain artists that I just consumed all goddamn day. And now after, after certain changes in my life and, and those memories of that music are associated with things, right? Like I, I no longer, ha- it's, it's now like painful. So like yeah. music that I used to love is now I have to like reject in some way. And it's like, it's just such a strange experience where you have to like <laughs> right. no longer, right. yeah, consume that. But I, I think <laughs> that to be generous towards the, what I earlier referred to as the kind of dumb liberal appropriations of the broad or whatever else, I think a lot of what they're, what's feeding that is an interest in people just getting okay with their idiosyncratic desires. Mm-hmm. And that, that because so much of the, I mean, this certainly animates Butler for without question, but, but others as well. I do think that there is a sense of like, look, you can just like the things that you like. And you don't, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter whether that's, you know, heteronormative mm. or whatever, you know, like just just be okay with your desires and with their tr- transformations and mutations and mm-hmm. whatever else. I mean, I, I do think that that, for instance, anti-Oedipus, I mean, that's certainly an animating sensibility behind that is like just get okay with your desire um, or with desire and how it operates sort of through you in that regard. Yeah. Um, I agree with that if you're kind of adopting this self-conscious orientation that we're all sort of endorsing here, like where you're not simply just accepting your desires, but you're thinking through them. Like you don't have, you don't have to reject them, but like, you know, you embody them and think about them. It's the, if you're like a simple racist piece of shit, you know, you're not going to tell that person, well, just stay comfortable in that mind space you're fine you know what i mean so like there's more or less like harmful desires and and habits and attitudes (laughs) but so i think that's because i was going somewhere like that as well and i wasn't thinking of in terms of racism or that works far better i was just thinking of somebody with like you know a wildly restrictive and thereby dangerous diets right because just because we are on the Mm -hmm. food thing um but let's go with racism Uh, but (laughs) like it just seems like there's a difference between desire and comfort Right, mm-hmm. like comfort is a particular kind of desire, and comfort tends to almost always be coupled with a fear or desire to push away, you know, mm-hmm. um, the uncomfortable, right? Which is just like the one thing that learning or teaching or experimenting or thinking all are definitely not okay with are comfort. It's like the one thing that they're not particularly okay with in most articulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, whether it's self-reflection or consciousness or experimentation or whatever it is, like some kind of, um, you know, engagement with, with difference uh, insofar as that would be avoidable anyway, um, like seems to be a pretty crucial part of the discovery of one's desires and the allowance of them to be able to take shape and emerge and uh, uh, withdraw and, and whatever else. I, I completely agree, but what's so frustrating for me is that that 
embracement of difference, which I agree is like key for, for theory, for living, for whatever, that gets codified today in people like Barad. Like that becomes totally. the resting that becomes the resting place. So it's no longer experimentation just gets reified into this apparatus, into the liberal progressive yeah. apparatus. And it's like I agree with the premise, but you're not actually taking it to the you're not you're not turning it over. I don't know another word. You're not transforming yeah, yeah. that that mode. You know? Well, it seems like it becomes a moralism insofar as adding this, like, you know, experimenting with difference is akin to finding particular others and differences and then forcing myself to enjoy and like them, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. I must learn to like, um, you know, sound um, art uh, because mm. this is an other that... This is the cool, smart... This is the right, smart other, right? Yeah. And that's that doesn't seem to be... That seems to be, you know, making sound art the same by saying, aha, mm -hmm. this has been codified under this particular category right. and therefore it's, it's the right kind of other. But that's... There's nothing new about that. We've we've always been down with finding the right others to bring into our into mm -hmm. our sphere, and that wouldn't be experimentation at all. That would like th those those roads have already been created for us. Right. Yeah. Here's it, another you have to like now sushi or you know the poke bowl or whatever. Hybrid yeah. cars. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just it's like people know the terms and they know how they're supposed to function, but they can't actually get them to do the work that they not that they should be doing but that they can do you know because yeah, they I mean, because I, I, it's I difficult to 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 well in in john's words render the other indistinct which is like this mm. thing has presented itself as other to me and i've already codified it as a distinct other and it takes work to trouble the the um the forces that render it recognizable. And if I incorporate mm -hmm. it recognizable, yeah, it's still going to do stuff, but, you know, my mm -hmm. only real options are, like, I don't have a whole lot of options in terms of experimenting with it, as long as mm -hmm. I know what it is from beginning to end. Hence the importance of the Russian formalists and defamiliarization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I want to add in one, one other, this is a slightly different tack, but this might be an interesting one. It might not be. Um, so Nate a second ago said like we're all more or less comfortable with this self consciousness thing, and I uh, um, <laughs> I bristled at that, um, and I bristled at my own bristling as in a perfect Hegelian <laughs> <laughs> response, um, and I and I thought for a moment I'm like maybe that's part of the hesitation is that there seems to be a um, well I go back and forth on this so one is the role of consciousness here seems to be quite important and, and quite elevated in a very traditional sort of enlightenment way. Like consciousness is the thing. And, and, I, and, and I, I recognize and accept your, I mean, so on the one hand, I kind of go, well, hey, that's kind of an interesting move today because the intellectual climate is not one that thinks consciousness is relevant at all. In fact, mm -hmm. the basis for all the new materialism stuff is who gives a fuck about consciousness? Let's just talk about stuff doing things. Yeah. Um, and then I'm like, well, you know, I see what criticism, self-criticism, relentless self-criticism gets in terms of the movement. And I was like, well, can't you have self-criticism without consciousness? Like, does it have to involve conscious thought? Like, can't it involve it? I'm not talking about unconscious thought, which certainly, you know, but I'm talking like, can't your body just react to your body as a criticism? Like, for instance, when something makes you nauseous, isn't that a criticism? 
um, of the thing that you have incorporated, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily require a conscious awareness of my nausea or of anything whatsoever. Like, can't we, is it possible to think criticism as the kind of movement of negation without consciousness being the necessary engine for uh, the criticism? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this is, for, for me, what's been interesting. I, I haven't been thinking about this in terms of criticism explicitly, but in terms of thinking, and I like, especially in writing this Plato piece, you know, trying to think of reading or thinking as, as writing, not mediated through writing, yeah. but writing is thinking insofar as writing is, and I'll have to be, forgive me for this term for us just a second, but like, um, writing is nothing more than self-exteriorization, which is like, writing puts out a mark that, or is, is the putting out of a mark that has to, res that is put into a new chain that provokes some kind of differential response, which then puts out a new mark that puts out, that, that has a different response to the chain that it's been inserted within. And to me, that movement is nothing more than, than thinking, and you could then subdivide that yeah. movement some like, you know, like this one got rejected or this one got dismissed or didn't get taken up and that's a kind of criticism or that's a kind of whatever mm -hmm. else it is. But that doesn't have to, I mean, that certainly does happen within the realm of, of consciousness that we, as we typically mm -hmm. describe it, but it's not in any way... Um, driven by it. Driven well, by yeah. it or exclusive to it. Yeah. I mean, I've been throwing around self-consciousness uh, loosely here as like the good thing Mostly because that's how Hegel frames it. But I was going to say, that's a, it's not right. you, it's Hegel. I mean, yeah. Hegel's yeah. very much. But I, I mean, the way, I'm not even really thinking about consciousness. Basically, I'm just thinking about, like, it would almost be, the more accurate term for me would be self-interrogation. So consciousness doesn't have to be, like, a separate thing from the body or whatever. It's it's a suspicion of consciousness, right, that, that Hegel's kind of endorsing. It's not like a, it's not a reifying or essentializing of consciousness itself, it's talking about the limits of it and just trying to sort of get at the, you know, the details of the movement of thinking, which includes bodily affective uh, thinking as well. So, but, but does it though? I mean, that's, that's, that's actually a real complication in terms of the, cause sense certainty. I mean, I know we haven't right. read that thing, but I mean, that seems like the kind of primordial, you know, mm -hmm. like, like uh, the early, the early phases, you know, right. and so I, I believe that one could do the work on thinking to distinguish it from consciousness and to have a kind of materiality of it. But it does right. seem to me like it would require work because here mm -hmm. it does seem like it's, it's that, that's the animal, you know, or, mm -hmm. or yeah. the sort of subhuman or not, not evolved enough human um, mm -hmm. position. So that, that might be another hinge of, of of questioning, possibly. Um, right. That, and, and so it's not your, I mean, you know, your use of the term self-consciousness is one that, for the most part, I just don't even, I'm like, yeah, I get it. And, right, and I'm right. obviously, like, I, there's a way in which I do have an investment in consciousness. But interestingly enough for me, I feel like my investment in consciousness is as an epiphenomena. Meaning it's like, oh, it's so cool that that thing happened in my head, right? Like, I, mm -hmm. I really, like, that's how I experience my thinking. You mm -hmm. know, and even when my thinking is this sort of, like I said, sort of following the Hegelian chain of negation, it's like, oh, it's so cool that I've, you know, internalized this thing such that my thinking even manifests it. And right. so I, but I don't think of my thinking as driving it entirely. In all fairness, of course, I think my thinking can, in certain instances, 
drive my actions. I think that it, it does, but I don't think it does that all the time at all. Uh, right. or even I usually. mean, I, I feel like all, most of the time thinking happens to me, right? Or thinking right. Yeah. happens yeah. through yeah. me. Like I get caught up in a particular kind of chain and because there are already a handful of chains going on here, weird permutations happen and something comes out of it and then it might... You know, it might be bouncing between something more or less called me and a bunch of other things more or less in my proximity. Yeah. But like that, like I feel like I'm caught up in that process rather than the engine of that process. And in fact, I feel like my thinking always, suffers. Yeah. The, like, I feel like my thinking suffers the most. Yes, yes. Exactly. My thinking suffers the most when I try to do it. And I'm like, all right, step one, step two. Exactly. But right, you, you kind of have to give way to that, right? It's not like a, I'm not going to say it's not natural, but like you have to sort of facilitate that a little bit. So it's not that yeah, you're that, the, mo- you're, you're not the motor of self-consciousness, but you kind of have to allow that to happen in some way, even if yeah. it's implicit. I, I don't think most people allow for that, right? I, I agree. That, and there's, there's yeah. a, I mean, I've always thought of it as like one of the, one of the things that I'm interested in facilitating as a teacher is production of increased surface area. And surface area means capacity to be affected, right? In the Spinoza sense, it's, it's exposure. Meaning mm-hmm. like if your average person on a particular issue has very, very narrow capacity for exposure, what are some other things that can make them affected more? Like that, that mm-hmm. can increase that surface area. Again, I just think in biological viral mm-hmm. metaphorics in that regard of like what are ways of to me this is rhetoric right like what are the ways of producing the possibility of infection and Mm -hmm. you you have to and again by the way it relates to our previous conversation because one of the very important strategies that viruses use viruses use is non-recognition indistinguishability because the Mm -hmm. moment that it's recognized then you have like you know t-cells and the immunal response and whatever whatever so you know the effective virus that may well be our dna the effective viruses are the ones that are not recognized at all as viruses you know, mm-hmm. and so that that's the sense of indistinguishability as a condition for generativity of whatever, like, you know, right. of tra- transformation. And that that's the key is that, you know, I mean, the um, if you're thinking of rhetoric and in its instrumental senses, then, you know, you want the infection to be for the sake of something. And uh, like, to me, that's a bad read of yeah. Viruses that viruses don't you know want the destruction right. of the cell or no, 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 I don't even think all. they want the propagation of future virus cells like they just express their difference and when they express it like when that difference is expressed in the combination of the virus and cell like one kind of thing happens and yes the death of the cell is often mm-hmm. that thing or the hijacking of the cell or whatever else it is but. Mm-hmm. You know, the surface area is, is for the sake of the transformation, and then it takes a second level of judgment to be able to say that that is a bad transformation or a good transformation. Right. <clears throat> but the, the impulse is to trap that virus and not allow it to run its course, right? At least in terms of, con- like, I'm thinking just in terms of consciousness. Like, when, when you have flights of thinking that are more or less incoherent, most people's coping strategy is to territorial act to latch on to something right whether it's a i need to watch a movie i I need to like get out of my head somehow i need to listen to a podcast but if you if you take a step back and like just allow the self to mediate rather than to explicitly mediate or or glom onto something that's when you can actually achieve something productive with that movement rather than stifling it you know yeah 
Yeah. I need a quick the more you know um, timeout. That word glant that you use a lot, a lot. I don't. I think mean, I get, I get what you're saying. I get. Is what it the wrong word? Grab. Yeah, no, latch. No, no, latch on. I, I'm just grab. curious, like where it comes from, or like, you know, or is it just a word that? Well, is it like I, biological I, you, in nature? You know why? It's familiar to me. I started saying it because I was saying latch on too much. Ah. <laughs> so is, are there any other terms that I can circulate? Because I'm finding, when I listen back, I'm like, man, I'm saying certain things a lot. So I'm like looking for... <laughs> you need to diversify your you portfolio. Got, you guys listen to yourself in the, in the re-listening more. I, I listen to you yeah, guys. Yeah, only me. I only listen actually. to my takes. I'm like, I just go right to my portion. I'm like, oh, that's great. Listen to me. I'm so good. It was... Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the term or that you use it too much. I, it's just like a term that is unfamiliar with me and I'm just – I'm always an etymology nerd and I'm like, where, where does that word come from? Or It's, or it's, familiar, it's familiar to me, Nate. It's, yeah. I mean I never thought twice yeah, about it. So I have no idea. Yeah. Just to <laughs> latch on or to grab on or glom yeah. on, I've always – I mean I get the yes. sense of it. Like I, like it, I didn't right, – it didn't right. throw me for a loop. Like what does that – what the hell does it mean to glom my, on? My goal, my goal for next podcast is to say neither glom on nor latch on. I'm going to try not to say either of those things. 